Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Trump. Lots to translate today, folks. Gordon Chang will join us. A lot has happened since the North Korean summit. We'll see where things stand. We'll also get Joel Farkas. He's the director of the American Strategy Group, and we'll get his thoughts on President Trump and Putin. And lastly, John Yu, professor at Berkeley, a brilliant lawyer, will get his take on the president's remarks at Helsinki and the Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. He is an expert. Let's welcome back to the show Gordon Chang. Gordon, you've heard before, he's the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Well, we've taken on North Korea. How are we doing? Gordon, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much for asking. I really do want to talk about North Korea a fair amount, but it would be an affectation not to ask you about uh, Helsinki yesterday. And I, in fact, I want to know if you think there might be a connection. But um, what did you think of the president's press conference? I was deeply concerned by President Trump's performance at the press conference with Putin yesterday. Um, there are certain things you just shouldn't say in public, on foreign soil, standing next to one of the world's great thugs. Um, and whether or not what President Trump said was true or not, um, it was just not appropriate to say that in that setting. So it was offensive, I believe, to American values and norms. Um, I think President Trump needs to apologize to the men and women of the U.S. intelligence community. And I would hope that he'd apologize to the American people as well. I think uh, I certainly agree with you. The words could have been better. And I was I was surprised to hear them. Nevertheless, a couple things. I mean, his actions have been better than his words, certainly. And, uh, you know, actions, he could say today, uh, my actions speak louder than my words. I, my words should have been different. But um, it's also true. I, 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 this is a psychological explanation, which, you know, doesn't doesn't justify it. But, you know, I, he feels like he's been burned by intelligence agencies. The you know the Brennan CIA, the the Comey and uh, FBI, and uh, you know the the ongoing thing at the FBI. So you know he's he's probably got something of a bad taste in his mouth about these intelligence agencies. Uh, and I guess yeah. the other thing, go ahead, yeah, yeah, I fully understand that. Um, but you don't say those things in on foreign soil yeah. in public next to the world's big thug. Um, that's the problem here. And I agree with you. Uh, President Trump's Russia policies are much more resolute than those of President Obama's or those of George W. Bush's. Um, and so, you know, the president should get credit for that. But nonetheless, symbolism is important um, because he is the president of the United States and he needs to get over the 2016 election. Um, this is just uh, unacceptable. Yeah, there's a confusion too, right? I think when he hears the question about meddling, when he's given the question about meddling, he hears collusion. Uh, and then when he hears collusion, he thinks this is an attempt to discredit my election. They're separable. There's the question of Russian interference, meddling. Uh, and then there's the question of was he elected, duly elected? And to answer the second question, by all accounts, seems to be yes. So he shouldn't make that confusion. You know, there, there's a lot of, um, I think, a, a lot of justification for a, um, a much more friendly posture towards Moscow. I don't necessarily accept it, but nonetheless, there's a lot that um, one can say um, in terms of trying to peel off Moscow from Beijing. Um, but nonetheless, um, I don't think we saw effective diplomacy yesterday, even if one accepts that that was what President Trump was trying to do. You know, I, I agree, you know, China, not Russia, is the world's great problem, um, and you need as many friends as you can when you confront Beijing. 
But we need to have a much more effective way of getting Russia to support what we want to do. We didn't see that yesterday. What, what, what should he do? What should he do today? It's Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. What should he do? What are the best things for him to do or say today? You know, I'm at a loss um, to answer that question because I thought yesterday was so devastating. Um, I think President Trump needs to um, explain um, American policies, what we've actually been doing. And um, I hope that he'll be able to do that. Um, and as I said, I, I do think that he needs to affirm that Russia meddled in the 2016 election. Um, it may not have had an effect, but it doesn't matter. That election is over. Um, but President Trump needs to show the American people that he's gotten beyond it. And as far as we can tell right now, he certainly has not. Okay. All right. I, you know, my, my suggestion, uh, I, was, I was asked by somebody, not by him, but what should he say? And I, I said, you should say, look, look, look at my actions, not my words. And my words could have been better yesterday. And uh, I have confidence and faith in my intelligence community. And uh, he can refer to the... Uh, I don't know if you saw it, the Chris Wallace interview with uh, with Putin, where Putin essentially said, "Yeah, we passed information along. We got, we got information. Of course, it was accurate information. We passed it along. We didn't pass along anything false. Uh, <laughs> well, that wasn't the question. Whether you passed along false or inaccurate information is question whether you whether, whether you involved at all in leaking stuff from uh, from the DNC. So he's effectively admitted it, and 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 the president could point to that in his uh, in his defense." or in his restatement, I guess I should say. So he can make some ground up, but he has to, He needs to correct it in some way. Yeah, no, Bill, I agree with you. I mean, he can fix this. He's the president of the United States, after all. He's got overwhelming power, and he can use that leverage against Russia, which is, you know, looks big, but it's a weak state. So um, there's a lot that we can do on this. Um, but, you know, at the present time, I I'd like to see the president take some steps in that regard because we have a lot of disheartened allies right now. And indeed, um, we've got a lot of people upset in the United States. I think the president has an obligation to fix it. And there are a number of ways to do it. Um, I hope that he will. Um, but you know, like the rest of us, we'll just have to wait and see what he does, because um, this is absolutely critical. Let's talk about North Korea. Uh, let's let's by way of transition. North Koreans were listening to that yesterday. What's the effect on um, Kim Jong Un and his allies of what happened at the press conference? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Um, I think that Kim Jong Un is looking at President Trump's sanctions policy is really the most important thing affecting him, um, because that's the reason why Kim went to Singapore on June twelfth to talk to the United States was to get sanctions relief. He seems to be getting some informal relief, not only from the Russians, but also the Chinese. Um, and so I think that he's looking more at his own particular situation rather than what happened yesterday um, in in Helsinki. Um, the thing that I'm concerned about is Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, the way he's looking at this. I think President Trump's trade policy um, towards China has really been quite good. Um, President Trump is, is taking on some tough issues. Um, this doesn't help him in his relations with anybody. Um, but, you know, we do have that overwhelming power, not only over the Russians, but also the North Koreans and the Chinese. So I trust that President Trump will um, use that power to achieve what are really important aims, not only for us, but for everybody else. So um, this is another item on the to-do list. Um, 
a lot of us haven't followed as closely as we should because there have been so many intervening events. But since Singapore, there's been some backsliding. I've seen some comments uh, that you've offered and others. There's, uh, we're, we're not, are we not making the progress we expected at this point? Yeah, we're not making the progress. Um, there's been a number of uh, rep- a number of reports um, that shows that people in the White House have been surprised by what North Korea has been doing. Um, the thing that's a concern, of course, is that they're increasing their production of fissile material. They're continuing their work on their missile program. Um, they uh, obviously um, stood up the United States at that July 12th meeting. Fortunately, they they met with us afterwards. Um, but there's uh, no indication, I think, from Kim Jong-un that he thinks that he needs to deal with us in good faith. And it's up to President Trump to disabuse him of that notion. If you look at U.S. policy towards the um, end of May, uh, President Trump was brilliant in dealing with the North Koreans. Since that time, uh, the North Koreans have been uh, the ones uh, obtaining all the concessions. And therefore, I think we really need to change the nature of the game. President Trump can do that. He has the will, and I trust that he's going to. All right, and, and okay. Uh, and, and as he does that, um, you don't think the, the Helsinki situation plays into it very significantly, that Kim Jong-un isn't no, paying I, attention to that? I, I think he pays some attention, of course, but uh, much more important to him are two things. Uh, one of them is um, uh, sanctions. Um, he's looking for sanctions relief. Um, and the second thing are the suspension of the U.S. military drills with South Korea. Okay. Those, uh, I think, have a much greater effect on his decision-making. Um, the one thing that, that troubles me is that effectively the U.S. has given sanctions relief to North Korea before yeah. they've given up anything. And we've done that in two ways. First of all, we haven't gone after blatant Chinese and Russian violations of U.N. and U.S. rules. Also, um, we have not sanctioned uh, North Korea's new front companies. Uh, the administration decided not to do that. Um, and the problem is that North Korea changes its dummy companies all the time. And if you don't sanction the new ones, you allow the North Koreans to hollow out sanctions. So um, I think Kim is getting a lot of what he wants without having to give up anything. And President Trump can change that dynamic, and I believe he needs to do so soon. Otherwise, we're going to see more instances of North Korean backsliding. And, and and whatever the deficits of of the Helsinki, he can do that despite Helsinki, right? He can get he can make that push. President Trump can easily do that. So, for instance, okay, um, we know that the Chinese banks have continued to launder money for North Korea. This was after um, the June 29th designation of Bank of Dundong, which is a small Chinese bank, as a primary money laundering concern under the Patriot Act. That was meant to be a warning to Beijing. They've ignored that warning. And now President Trump needs to follow up and actually uh, impose some costs on some of the larger Chinese banks that have also been money laundering for the North Koreans. Okay. Let's, I'm, I'm going to shift gears and combine elements of, of these last few minutes together. Um, Russia and China. Let's think about Russia and China. The president said yesterday, I might check the numbers this morning. I think it's right. He said between the two countries, uh, the U.S. and Russia, those two countries, it's 80 or 90 percent of the world's nuclear weapons. Um, I counted something on the last thing I read, something like 6,500 nuclear weapons for us, something like 6,800 actually for Russia, China showing about 350 or 400. Why is it that a lot of very smart people, people I know and talk to, I'm sure some of the same people you talk to, believe that China is a more serious threat to us 
uh, and our existence uh, in the future than Russia, given just those those numbers? I think there are a couple of things. First of all, China is a, a larger country, larger economy, and, and that counts for a lot. Putin may have ambitions, but I don't think he has the resources to challenge us. His economy is $2 trillion. Our economy uh, last year produced $19.39 trillion of gross domestic product. So Russia can't mount an effective challenge. China uh, claimed last year $12.84 trillion of GDP. I think it's a lot less. But nonetheless, um, the gap between the U.S. and China is a lot smaller than the gap between the U.S. and Russia. Also, I think that China has much greater ambitions um, than, than Russia does. Uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, has been dropping hints that he thinks that China is the world's only sovereign state. And that, of course, is inimical not just to us, um, but also the rest of the international system. So I think that we need to look at China in a much different way. Um, this is We're in a struggle right now with China. Um, people call it a trade war, but it's really a tech war. It's a war for control of technology of the 21st century. The Chinese have been stealing American technology to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and we cannot allow that to continue. The Russians, in terms of theft of U.S. IP, just aren't anywhere on the same scale, largely because they don't have a manufacturing sector and they don't have the same ambitions that the Chinese do. I was talking to someone who studies uh, Russia and China and said, uh, uh, this was yesterday, indeed, after the press conference, and they said, look, uh, a lot has been said about the relatively small size of the Russian economy, smaller than the state of Texas, uh, and this gentleman pointed out that China's was much bigger by, you know, at least a factor of four or five, uh, which is consistent with what you said. He said, but also we can we can wreck, you know, this uh, this Russian economy. It's it's a one it's a one factor economy, uh, you know, gas it's a gas station, and you know, start sending liquefied nat- natural gas from the U.S. in huge quantities, um, and you know, you can you can really hurt the Russians a great deal. Can't do the same terms of China uh, because it's a much more diverse economy. Also, the emphasis here, he didn't say it, but you just said it, more in the technology part than in the uh, than in the gas or oil part. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. You know, with um, energy, um, this is uh, President Reagan's playbook. You know, reduce the price of commodities, and that reduces um, the proceeds that, that the Soviet Union had um, in order to challenge the international community. So we need to do the same thing with Russia. You know, with regard to Russia, Bill, you know, there is a feeling that, oh, Russia is a declining state, um, right. so therefore we'd right. like to see a gradual decline rather than a sharp one. And there's a lot of, you know, common sense to that. But the point is that uh, Russia has been doing things which are inimical um, to the way we see the world, you know, trying to redraw the map of Europe, Europe by force, threatening NATO states, um, all sorts of stuff. Well, interfering in our election. You know, I think that we need to um, show Russia that um, we're happy to see a failure of uh, Putin. Um, I think that would be um, that would be very beneficial. You know, with regard to China, China is very vulnerable right now. It's um, renminbi, uh, the currency, is uh, in uh, fast decline. June was the worst month of the renminbi against the dollar, and it's continued to fall. The Chinese stock markets are in serious trouble. Um, the economy is not doing very well. President Trump um, was doing a few things, like, for instance, imposing costs on Chinese banks, could put the Chinese political system um, and Xi Jinping out of business. 
and we truly, need to think about much harsher measures. Truly, if nothing out of, else, tr Bill. Truly out of business. Truly. I think so. Um, Go ahead. Because right now, China is in a fragile state. If we were to take their big four banks, all big four of them, all four of them have been laundering money for North Korea. If we were to either impose billion-dollar fines or, better yet, designate them as money launderers, that would rock the Chinese banking system because that would be death sentences for those institutions. Um, that would certainly um, roil their economy, which is fragile, as I mentioned already. Um, Xi Jinping is in trouble at home. Um, I think that this could lead to his um, being tossed out, which might not be a bad thing for us. Um, but these are things that we can do. Got to remember that the United States in general has overwhelming leverage over China. It's just that we choose not to use it. Uh, and we do that for various reasons. I think those reasons no longer exist, and we should be using our power to protect um, our way of life. And unfortunately, that, that feeling has not permeated through the administration yet. But Trump, more than his predecessors, understands the existential nature of the challenge that China poses and is more willing, obviously, to take on China. So I think that every American, whatever they think of the president, needs to line up behind him in this challenge uh, with China, because this is where we define our future. Wow. Uh, just two more questions. We'll let you go. I'm generous with your time, as always. But you say things that lead to other questions in my mind. It's always so provocative. But let's talk about Russia and China. So if, if, the, if the choice with Russia is to see it decline slowly or hasten their decline, how and, and, and you know, and, and drive Putin out of office, how do you square that with the need to or at least the perceived need that we've heard from the administration, from the president to work with Putin? So you want to work with Putin as you want to bring Putin down or can you do both at the same time? I would like to work with Putin um, because I think that the United States in general needs to partner with Russia, which is not as much a threat to us because it's a much smaller um, economy and the rest of it. But what we, what we need to do is, is see the U.S. use tactics which would encourage Putin's uh, cooperation. And so far, I think the administration has adopted tactics just emboldened the Russian leader rather than made him more amenable. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we could do um, because Russia does need us. Um, but we're not doing those things. Name and another so, thing or two, you know, in addition to you know the liquefied natural gas. What else might we do to weaken their circumstance? Uh, certainly, what we need to do is even more than we have to bolster NATO. Um, I know that the president, our president, is right to say that the Germany and, and other countries are not um, bearing their fair share of NATO's burden. But right now, we have a issue where um, we see. Putin um, challenging the Baltics. We need to do much more than we have in the past. We need to see more lethal aid to the Ukrainians. I think the president gets a lot of credit for lethal aid to um, Ukraine, but we need to do a lot more to raise the cost and also to protect uh, the territorial um, integrity of Ukraine. Uh, so this is, uh, I think, where our struggle with Russia lies. If we do that and Putin realizes he cannot um, um, achieve his ambitions, he might become more amenable. I'm not guaranteeing it, but obviously what we're doing right now is pushing Putin in all the wrong directions because I don't see his behavior yeah. um, getting better. It's getting worse. All right. Uh, last question then about China. 
you just gave a short list for Russia. What are the things we do with China to weaken it? If Russia is strong, but the strength is more in the past, China is strong but weak at the moment, but trying to become stronger in the future and certainly challenging us in a way that Russia isn't for world domination. Yeah, a couple things. Um, and just to go back over um, the Chinese banks laundering money, okay. whatever we think our North Korea or our China policy should be, we should not allow anyone to to run money through New York uh, in violation of U.S. federal law. Right. We've allowed the Chinese to do that. Um, we right. stop them. I think we show political will. Also, um, I am very much in favor of President Trump's um, tariffs imposed under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974. This is not a trade issue as much as is an issue over intellectual property and technology. If we can't protect uh, our innovation, we can end up being an economy which looks like a third world one selling basic products like soybeans. Um, We need to protect uh, our innovation. And so I, I thoroughly agree with President Trump when he threatens tariffs on $500 billion worth of Chinese goods. We need to make it very clear to the Chinese that they cannot have their agents operate on U.S. soil. Unfortunately, we saw in the previous administration um, essentially a green light to Beijing for their guys to run around the U.S. intimidating American residents. We need to stop that. And I think what we really need is a declaration from President Trump, a very clear one, that the United States will defend the interests, not only the United States, but the international community. And we will not allow the Chinese to um, grab territory by force, specifically Taiwan, but also South China Sea, where I think the president's been doing a pretty good job. Plus, we have to help India. There's all sorts of areas where the Chinese are threatening to take territory. This is Putin-esque. We need to stop it in Europe. We need to stop it in Asia. All right. It seems to me you have just answered both in terms of Russia and China. Uh, question I asked you earlier, how's the president recover from what was perhaps a great uh, self-inflicted wound uh, at Helsinki? Uh, if he knows those things in regard to those two, uh, that'll be very soon forgotten. Um, great stuff. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The way the president fixes yesterday is he changes the conversation and he starts to to discuss and act upon those critical issues with regard to Moscow and Beijing. He does that. We forget about yesterday. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you very much. Terrific. Really appreciate it, as always. Thank you, Bill. All right. That was Gordon Chang. He's the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Time to jump in with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. A lot of static coming at the president uh, for equating the reliability of U.S. intelligence agencies with the reliability of Putin's word. People are hot and bothered and furious. I think I think he could have said it better. I think he could have said it differently. I think there's other things to be said on his behalf. But what was your reaction? Well, I agree with you. He, he could have said some things better. But more importantly, I was kind of surprised that uh, Vladimir Putin had time to meet with President Trump because over the last 45 days or so, he's met with Angela Merkel uh, in Sochi. He's met with uh, Macron. Yeah, several times, uh, one in St. Petersburg, and again in, back in Russia during the FIFA World Cup. So he, he, he's been a very busy guy. It's nice that he could fit the president in. I'm being a little facetious. Yeah, you are. Your point about yeah. all these meetings is, is what exactly? Well, the first criticism before the, the summit 
even occurred was should the president, should President Trump meet with Vladimir Putin? And the answer is, of course, he should have met with Vladimir Putin. Everybody else, all of our other significant NATO allies have been meeting and continue to meet with Vladimir Putin. Now, regarding the the the, the, uh, the news conference after their their so-called summit, I was I was stunned by something Putin said that I have not heard many people discuss. And what I was stunned was his. Uh, public, worldwide, international acknowledgement to the the press of his his admission, acknowledgement that that um, Russia needs energy. Russia. He made a comment that that uh, one of the one of the cooperation one of one of the issues that the United States and Russia should cooperate on is that quote neither of us is interested in the plummeting of oil prices. That was pretty amazing statement because, you know, Bill, you and I, as long as eight years ago, have been talking about what is the best way for the United States to deal with our adversaries without war, without shooting, without nuclear weapons, without conflict. And one of the, one of the most obvious ways is to to impair their our, our enemy's ability, their economic ability to wage war. And this was a this is a worldwide international admission by President of the Russian Federation that that is in fact important. It's it's it, it, it was something that I was I was stunned that he would admit. But we all in in the United States we know that that is the case. It, it is um, Russia without energy, without oil, without gas really has no very little economic viability. And I was proud that our president, the United States president, Donald Trump, when asked about energy and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and Germany and NATO pursuing Russian energy, he did not waver or give an inch. He said, the United States is, is becoming the world's largest producer. We will be competitive and we will continue to be and we will be successful. I think that that's that's one of the most that is the most important thing I gleaned from this meeting and their press conference. We just spoke with Gordon Chang, um, expert on China and North Korea, but a student of foreign policy. He had an interesting thing to say. He said um, the greater threat to U.S. security in the future is China, not Russia, uh, because China's growing and Russia is not size of the Chinese economy four or five times the size of Russia. But to connect here with what you're saying, he said, you know, it's a one industry economy. And if you want to bring that economy down, you compete with them um, on the very matter, on the very thing that runs their economy, which is oil and gas with American liquefied natural gas, about which you know a lot. So is that right? I mean, if, if 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 the sort of larger mega question, Joel, out there is how do, how do we deal with the with the Russian threat? One way to Russia, deal with the Russian threat is by dealing with the Russian economy and by making it weaker. And you make it weaker by challenging them in this area. Is that is that fair? It's very fair. It, it is. It, it's absolutely correct. The Russian economy is about the size of Texas. A Texan told me, "Don't say it's the size of Texas. It's smaller than Texas." I would, I would take Texas over the Russian economy. I would agree with that. Sure, for lots of <laughs> and, reasons. Yeah, for for lots of reasons. Um, it's a combination of 
the Russian economy, the Russian economy is based on oil and gas. Without oil and gas, there is no economy. That is correct. But what's interesting is the European Union, and in particular our NATO allies, their economy is based on importing energy. Uh, Germany, for instance, imports 80% of their energy needs, of their, of their oil and gas needs. So when when uh, uh, when people refer to Donald Trump as, as as looking in a certain way towards Russia, the people that look towards Russia are France and Germany and most of the other European Union countries because without uh, importing energy and in, in particular natural gas and liquefied natural gas, the European Union they really have no economy either. This leads into sanctions, and we'll get to that in a second, but. Mr. Chang's, Gordon Chang is correct. China is the threat. It's not Russia. What we really are seeing is both the United States and China, or maybe Russia, using the United States and China to see which side of the coin that they're going to fall. But the real threat, the real significant threat, is absolutely China. Francis, again, I was going to stipulate in the conversation with Gordon, because I looked this up, when the president said at Helsinki, well, you know, we between the two countries, we control... In 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. I looked and it's right about 6,500 nuclear weapons uh, in the United States, about 6,850 in Russia, China only 350, but growing and China's strength is potentially and quite, quite likely in the future, Russia's is in the past. But go ahead. That's I don't good. want to break your train of thought because I want to ask you more about yeah. the energy challenge uh, to, to Russia. What's interesting about the meeting, uh, the, the NATO meetings, and the NATO gathering, and then the, the, the Helsinki uh, uh, summit, yeah. was what, what did all these nations talk about? And they all publicly said. Angela Merkel, who met with uh, Putin, said, "We're going to talk about Iran, Syria, Ukraine, energy." What did President Macron say? We're going to talk about Ukraine, uh, Iran, energy. The focus. Of what was just what we just witnessed over the last uh, week, and then also the last 45 days, has been centered around energy and gas, natural gas, and liquefied natural gas. The liquefied natural gas market in the last year has increased 10% worldwide. Most of that has been in Asia. Um, it's and and most of the uh, and a significant amount of the new new um, uh, purchases are happening in Europe because you talk about declining. Um, uh, certain uh, certain economies and certain nuclear power, excuse me, nuclear threats. The European production of their own energy is declining. They have to get it from somewhere. Now, what was uh, Macron and Merkel doing in these meetings? Well, Macron, when he went to Saint, the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, he sat there with the CEO of, the, of, of Total, their largest energy, uh, energy company, met with Putin and signed an agreement to drill and, and liquefy and transport liquefied natural gas in the Arctic, the Russian Arctic. Uh, Angela Merkel. Can I ask a question? You're, yeah. you, you've been to France a lot and know this issue yeah. a lot. For years, I <clears throat> thought that the French uh, energy source was primarily nuclear, that they were a big user of nuclear energy. No? The French have been using nuclear, but they're trying to diminish it. But it's an interesting uh, comment because also a significant user of nuclear has been Germany. But what people don't realize is 43% of Germany's energy production comes from coal. Huh. Um, and 
I want to connect this a bit to the G7 summit that we had in Canada not so long ago. What was the big communique that uh, Trudeau came out with? Climate change. Yeah. We are going to find a way to deal with climate change. Well, you didn't hear one of these climate warriors in uh, in Europe the last week talking about anything about that. They were talking about natural gas and liquefied natural gas and energy production. The G7 meeting in Canada was was a, was a charade. It was just a propaganda um, a meeting. We had a, a Canadian prime minister who wants to lecture our president on what he says to Putin. Well, he could have lectured Merkel and Macron on what they said to Putin too, but he's more of a uh, of a Canadian Chihuahua barking to to big to leaders about something that nobody is paying right. attention to. Right, Merkel is just, Merkel is much more in bed, excuse the expression, with uh, with Putin than Trump is. I mean that deal, right, uh, is is enormous. Yes, and the, the predicate to the Merkel and Putin meeting was that not only we're, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about um, uh, you know Iran. We're going to talk about Syria. We're going to talk about energy. The other predicate to that meeting was Merkel said. We will not speak about, we will not discuss sanctions. Now, the reason why that was off the table is because sanctions are hurting. The, the U.S. sanctions that President Trump has ratcheted up are hurting Russia. The U.S. sanctions are, are and, and Russia is working with and trying to negotiate with both France and Germany to eliminate sanctions. What, were the pers- what was the purpose of sanctions? The purpose of sanctions was to isolate Russia from the world, to have them pay an economic price for their annexation of Crimea and their treatment of the Ukraine. That was the purpose of the sanctions. When they were originally put on, we had President Obama and David Cameron of the UK give speeches and statements that we will continue these these sanctions. They keep doing it. We're going to make it worse for them and we're going to isolate Russia. Well, The sanctions now are being relieved because of France and Germany. The French have publicly stated that they don't think sanctions are working and that they should allow them to be relaxed. Angela Merkel of Germany has publicly stated and and has as a condition before meeting with Putin that they will no longer discuss sanctions. Now, that was really what President Trump said when he went to NATO. He said, not only are you going to pay up and pay your 2% or more, but in addition to that, you're going to, we expect you to adhere to the sanctions that we have imposed on Russia. And furthermore, Germany, this pipeline, Nord Stream 2 pipeline that you are agreeing to build, Germany currently imports 40% of its gas from Russia. It'll go, it'll go beyond 50% if Nord Stream 2 pipeline gets built. And the other thing President Trump said to at the breakfast before the, the, the NATO meetings began is, you're asking us to defend you against an adversary, and you are increasing the ability for okay. this adversary to wage war against okay. you. Okay. All right. Okay. This puts, this puts a lot together. Can I ask you a couple of factual questions just to clarify? Sure. Because uh, sure, the overall sure. narrative here is clear. The theme now is clear. I asked you about the nuclear. You said, what, 40% or something, France. It, it, is it they need they need stuff from Russia because nuclear can't do it all? Is that, is that it? They have about 80%. Nuclear is, is becoming a much smaller um, How component of How France. I thought nuclear was uh, the future, report- if you could get past the Jane Fonda objection. <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, natural gas, the, right now, natural gas is the most efficient, effective, okay. inexpensive way to deliver energy to the world. Uh, there are it's a better deal than nuclear. More. It's a better deal than nuclear. Better deal. Okay. And it's more so nuclear. To 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 put it in a, in a without getting into the weeds, nuclear requires a massive capital in, uh, investment. Sure does. Up okay. And and is it a better you, deal? Uh, is liquid nuclear better than uh, coal too? In the case of Germany, um, much better. Uh, and and so what 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 happens with liquefied natural gas? Let's just briefly say what it is. Take natural gas. You liquefy it, which is a uh, which is a free freeze it, and, and so you can transport it. You take it to another country. They have a regasification plant, and they put it back into gas. What that means is that a country that has regasification facilities has the ability to buy natural gas from every producer in the world, okay. and without a major capital investment up front and instantaneously. All right. It, it All is right. the whole no, delivery down. system is easier. So when now now let's um, get now let's get back to the geopolitics because I want to uh, this is kind of becoming a theme of the show here both with Chang and with you and our and our next guest. So when Trump and Putin go through that parse that a little bit the Trump and Putin exchange about well we'll be competitive. We want to be competitive with Russia on this front. Do we want Europe to look to us for liquefied natural gas rather than Russia? Can we compete successfully against Russia in terms of delivering it at the right price? Those kinds of questions. So yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Um, let's. We 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 certainly can't compete. The two I, I mentioned before, the the LNG market has increased ten percent year over year. Most of that increased production came from the United States and Australia. Yes, we want to sell our gas, our LNG worldwide. Um, but the other thing is Russia has proven Russia uses their sales of gas as a political weapon. We've seen Russia over the last decade on three different occasions, 2006, 2008, and 2000, recently 2015. Basically, they were delivering. Russia was delivering gas through the Ukraine to Europe. Obviously, there's been uh, you know, the annexation of Crimea and the yeah. conflict in Ukraine. Yeah. What did Russia do with that? They, they, they shut down the, the, the delivery, they, several, several uh, uh, tactics. One, they shut the delivery to the Ukraine and to Europe. They did it in the winter. It's cold, and it made, every, it made Europe crazy. Now, they wanted to keep Europe on the hook, so they delivered gas. They delivered gas through their pipeline to Europe not to Ukraine. Ukraine sued Russia in the Stockholm Sweden court. Ukraine won a $2.5 billion settlement. Russia said, great, we're not paying you. And by the way, we're tearing up the agreement. Russia has used the delivery of gas to achieve their political objectives worldwide. And for Germany and France to deny that is patently absurd. Another example of the geopolitics of this, the Baltic states, in particular Lithuania, they used to be under the Soviet Union. They are no longer. They have been actively creating and building and constructing regasification plants for LNG so they can get off of the dependence of gas from Russia, so they can buy from the entire world. Their stated objective is to be able to buy from anyone in the world. They, laid, they, they named their, their regasification plant independence. Here we have the Baltic states who are showing the world that they want a diverse supply. And then we have our NATO allies, in particular Germany, becoming, I think the word has been used, more captive to Russia. 
Well, that what does that mean? It means if this if they're currently importing forty percent of their gas from Russia, they will be more than fifty percent from Russia. Okay. Okay. Let me ask this then. So they're becoming more captive, more dependent. This shows up something you and I have been talking about for weeks: the hypocrisy of these other G7 countries toward the United States. Trump back when in Canada, and you one pointed this out to me, when he said, hey, maybe we should have Russia back in, make it G8. They were all shocked. Don't you know what Russia is? Don't you know what they do? Don't you know that bear eats people? But meanwhile, they're all cozying up to Russia for these deals. So that shows the hypocrisy. But now let's not talk about geopolitics. Let's talk about real politics. Is the capacity, and you were the first one to point this out to me, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, about what tapping our energy resources could do for our economy and indeed for the world. Is Putin, let's stipulate, Putin and Trump agreed yesterday that there'd be competition. Do we have the means, the capacity to defeat them in the energy sector with our liquefied natural gas? Can we offer a larger and better deal to Germany, to France, and to other nations than Russia? Yes, the United States and Russia, by the way, Vladimir Putin knows this, which is why he said what he said in his at the Helsinki summit. He knows this. Well, his said, biggest, when he said what, particularly? When he said, neither of us have an interest in plummeting uh, yeah. oil prices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is very telling. He knows the United States and the world can defeat any aggressive action by Russia with low oil prices, low gas prices. And that's a price. We can also defeat them by taking over their market There's two market share. There's two ways okay. to reduce the revenue of the Russian oil and gas industry. Lower prices, take take their customers. Very very straightforward, very easy, very simple. We do. We do. United States, Australia, others. Right now, before the United States and Australia started producing more and more uh, LNG and selling it. The big producers were Russia, Qatar, and Iran. Those are the large, largest producers in the world of gas, which can, we can convert to LNG. Russia, Iran, and Qatar. It is now turning into many other producers, the biggest of which are United States and Australia. That is something that Russia understands and knows that we can do. Now, it's, I mentioned these regasification plants. In order to take this LNG, a country needs to have the infrastructure to use it and that's regasifying it. There are more than 40, maybe more than 50 proposed new regasification projects on the boards to be built. The entire world is looking towards LNG as a significant primary source of energy because of the, of the, the volume that the world has, the ability to transport it, the ability to sell it on a spot market instantaneously. And that's where the world is headed. It's not headed okay. towards wind and solar. Okay. It's not headed okay. toward nuclear, and it will replace also the coal that's being used let's, significantly in Germany, also India, also China. All right, let's go back to the U.S. v. Russia, because I just want to stay on this point in light of the headlines and the talk and all the news. If if America can, as you, and you say it can, challenge Russia in terms of supplying energy and the price and, you know, plummeting price, I presume, will mean more, more, of, a, more of a risk to, to Putin than to Trump in the U.S. We can, we can, we can defeat that aspect of their, of their trade with ours. But in doing yes, so, but in doing so if, I, if I understand the Russian economy right, we are weakening not just their 
you know, their their capacity to trade in energy, we're weakening their economy significantly since it's a one, you know, they have one industry in that state. Uh, and therefore, we are weakening not just their economy, but we're weakening Russia. Yes. The easiest way to weaken and defeat and at our, our Russian adversary, and President Trump does know Russia is our adversary, is to take away their revenue source. The, the whole idea behind sanctions was not only to isolate Russia, but also to make it uneconomical for them to pursue these, these worldwide goals. So to isolate them, make it uneconomical. Well, another way to make Russia less uh, able to pursue some of these, 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 these uh, you know, the Syrian and Iranian and Crimea and Ukrainian pursuits, you reduce their revenue, you reduce their economy, you hurt their economy. That's not lobbing a nuclear missile. It's not putting troops on the border. It's none of that. It's economic warfare. By the way, China is pretty good at it. Yeah. Russia wages it. We, though, the United States, singularly has the easiest and best capability of waging that that effort. Wow. This is amazing. I mean, liquefied natural gas now becomes the analogy today for what our tank production was in World War II. The Germans said they just keep coming with these tanks. And with what Star Wars and, and a strong economy were when Reagan negotiated with Gorbachev, you know, the American economy will just outbuild you. It will just, you know, we'll keep coming. And now it's energy that can that can weaken and take down the Soviet Union, the R- Russia, as a threat to the United States. Yes. So we have energy as a way to as a way to weaken an adversary in Russia. But it's been in President Trump was 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 correct when he said, I'm having as much difficulty. I guess what he said was even maybe more difficulty with the NATO allies. The NATO allies, in particular France and Germany, but significantly a lot of other smaller countries, they need this. They need energy so much. They they're desperate for obtaining it. Their own supplies are diminishing. Their own production is diminishing. Their demand is increasing. They need energy and they are Knee-jer- in a knee-jerk reaction, looking straight to Russia for it. It's a short-sighted, myopic view, and that because they have those policy statements, those policy objectives, France and Germany and others, it's making President Trump's effort to weaken the adversary more difficult. Can't they be persuaded Again, by, I, by a better by by a better deal being offered by the United States? I think that's a seminal question. Um, France and Germany are not stupid. They, they, right. they were aware of right. this. They don't. They don't know exactly how to respond. But yes, that uh, is, that is, uh, Bill. You're you're um, you always get to the final issue so so succinctly. We we need President Trump needs a better, more cogent message to them. The reason I say message is because. We have the ability. We have the infrastructure. We know how to. We have, we have the capacity to produce the, the the gas. We have the capacity to transport the gas. The UK, among other countries, has a capacity to take that gas and regas it and, and through the regasification plants and use it. All of that exists. We need to convince our allies that this is a better better path for their future. Okay. There is one. There is one thing our allies still need to do, and this gets back to something that we hear in the news all the time, building new pipelines. If you're going to transmit this regasified LNG throughout Europe, 
Europe needs more gas pipelines. They need more infrastructure to do that. Um, and, and that's something that, okay. that um, okay. you know, every time someone wants to build a pipeline, you read people protest it, they stand sure, on sure, it, they, sure, put, sure. they block it. They do need to do that. But for goodness sakes, why would a European country not want okay. to build those internal right. pipelines but want to build the, the Nord Stream 2 under the Baltic Sea? Got you. All right. Now, see, you unduly compliment me. You said I got to this point and expressed it so well. You led me to it. But I mean, you say to these guys, hey, do you you realize where our discussion started? We were talking about NATO. You guys realize that we're part of NATO. You're part of NATO, England, Germany, France. And what does NATO exist for? To protect you against your neighbor? We're offering you a better economic deal where your NATO neighbors and protectors, what the heck? Even Poland acknowledge as they mentioned if europe if if the european union has no energy policy there is no european union good boy that's great this is great great stuff thank you bill great always to talk to you we have just left this little tiff you know that washington press corps is going nuts about i do think you know the president could have done it better but We've taken it to these larger issues, which are so important. And I want to give you credit. You were prescient. Was it six, eight years ago? You About, about eight years ago, you and I, uh, mm-hmm. about eight years ago, we, we talked about this. Oil prices at that time, 2010 to 2014, ranged between 80 to $120 a barrel. And the um, we, we discussed how the easiest way to... Um, to, to to retard our adversaries was reduce their ability to wage war, lower prices. And how do you lower prices? Increase production. Get stuff out of the ground. Fantastic. Thank you, Mr. Farkas. Joel Farkas, American Strategy Group. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Bill. Bye. Okay, that was Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. As I mentioned before, I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now, special treat, for more on President Trump's remarks at Helsinki and the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, is John Yu. He's a law professor at Berkeley. He's the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law and Director of the Korea Law Center, the California Constitution Center, and the Law School's Program in Public Law and Policies. He's also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. Your reaction to where the day after Helsinki and the press conference, uh, what was your reaction to the president's remarks? I you know, share the disappointment a lot of people do, but more because it's a missed opportunity. I think a lot of Trump critics have gone way over the top, such as uh, John Brennan, former director of intelligence under President Obama, who said President Trump's comments were treasonous. I think this is way too far. I do think that President Trump missed an opportunity to push back on the Russians for their interference in our elections, although I don't think they changed the outcome. And I think that you had another opportunity to push back on the Russians with their activities in Syria and Eastern Europe. But I think when we look back at it historically years from now, I think Trump I think Trump and Putin are going to see that uh, they could have tried to start settling our differences. I mean, Russia's not an enemy. They're a competitor, and we have to live with them. And I think ultimately Russian interests in the world are going to be uh, more aligned with ours and with other countries like China. I've, I've always thought eventually the United States and Russia have to come to some kind of cohabitation or uh, agreement, because I think the real threat to both countries is a rise in China. And I think we 
overlook that longer-term strategic threat when we worry about the day-to-day uh, who's up, who's down of politics. Yeah, no, good point. I, I agree with you. Um, you know, the, the president pointed out that uh, weapon, in terms of weapons, nuclear weapons, he's right, 90% of them are, are owned by the U.S. or Russia. I looked at the chart uh, just this morning, 6,500 for us, something like 6,800 for them. But, you know, that's kind of the Soviet Union. That's the past. The future is China. That's where the threat is. I thought the most interesting part, and I'm just, maybe I'm showing off my new newfound knowledge of economics. I've been talking to smart people about economies and stuff, was the, was the talk about the competition, um, you know, particularly when it comes to energy, liquefied natural gas and all. You know, that's a, that's a one... A one industry country, right? That's what Russia does. And if we get going with our liquefied natural gas uh, and start offering that to the Brits and the Germans and the French, you know, that I mean, that's why Putin said yesterday, I took great interest in this. He said, we both have an interest that these oil and gas prices don't plummet. Well, he's got a bigger interest than than we do because we have a much more diverse economy. Does that make sense to you? I completely agree with you, Bill. And it's uh, hard to remember for all the uh, worries about the Russian intelligence agencies interfering in elections and so on. uh, In the long term, Russia is quite vulnerable. As you say, their economy is completely built around the export of oil and natural gas. Uh, Their population has been shrinking. Uh, Their economy outside of oil and gas is stagnant, if not shrinking. Uh, So they may need American help. And I think that's why I think Putin will look back on this as a missed opportunity, too, because rather than harassing the United States, trying to oppose us around the world or even just cause trouble in different regions, uh, you know, Putin should be asking himself, who's going to uh, help his country? Who's going to help his country develop faster? Who's going to help his country feel more secure and stable in the world? Is it going to be uh, NATO in the West? Or is it going to be China? And you're you're a student of history, Bill. You you know that Russian leaders have long wanted to Westernize, stretching back five, six hundred years. Uh, and it would be, I think, historians will look back and say it would be terrible if Putin was the one who ended up erecting a wall between Russia and the West. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. I've got so many things to talk to you about. I know your time is limited. You're a busy man. <laughs> Hopefully you're not practicing law at the moment and charging us by the hour because I would... You'd, you'd, you'd well, I always give a discount for nonprofits like you, Bill. Okay. okay. Right. I, we, I, we, 501c3, appreciate it very much. Like, let's, let's talk about Brett Kavanaugh. Do you know him? Yes, I've known him since law school. Really? Yeah. Really? Er- Almost, uh, uh, almost known him thirty years now. Yeah. And did you? Over- I, I can tell you, sir. I actually, um, when he graduated and moved out of his apartment, I was the one who took over his apartment. So I know what was under his bed and in his closet. Oh, tell us. No, don't tell us. Cause, <laughs> and don't <laughs> tell the Democrats. Whatever you do. Yeah. Uh, did you did you overlap in the Bush administration? Yes, he was in the uh, White House Counsel's office when I was in the Justice Department too. Uh, we also clerked around the same time at the Supreme Court. Uh, we were about, I think, when he was going out, I was coming in. So you've known Kavanaugh for for a number of years. Qual- qualified for the Supreme Court? Oh, very qualified. I couldn't imagine a more uh, credentialed nominee. He's gone to the finest colleges and law schools in the country, and he uh, clerked at the Supreme Court for the very justice he's replacing. Uh, worked in the highest levels in the White House and has been a court, uh, judge on the second highest court in the land. It's sometimes called the D.C. Circuit. 
federal court of appeals in Washington uh, for the last 13 years. We uh, I'll just insert here um, since you you were you're bragging about <laughs> how well you know him and how long you know him. He comes from our little um, Catholic community here in Chevy Chase. We uh, kind of hang together. He's a graduate of Modern Dei Elementary School, where my boys went. Georgetown Prep High School, where my boys went. Then he was lost to Yale, of course. But but that's yeah. I was going to say your sons turned out better since they went into the army. Yeah, uh, Marine Corps. That's right. One of my sons <laughs> Marine Corps. Joined the Marine Corps. But uh, so we know we know the incubator. Uh, in fact, I'll I'll brag here because I wanted my audience to hear it. If he's confirmed, this will put two graduates of Georgetown Prep High School, where my sons went, on the United States Supreme Court. Which will be pretty. That's amazing. Which will be pretty, pretty good. But uh, do do you see any reasonable basis, arguably reasonable basis, to oppose Kavanaugh on the part of the Democrats? I, I don't. I don't see anything. They haven't come up with anything yet. I, I don't see anything either. I think uh, people on the left are going to try to rum around, rummage around his record like crazy to try to find some stray comments about abortion or affirmative action or religion. But I think when you look at his opinions, he's never really directly addressed those issues. If anyone would be concerned about that, it would be the religious conservatives who, in the lead up to his nomination, were attacking him, I thought, surprisingly, uh, in favor of a judge out in Indiana named Amy Coney Coney Barrett. I also think that Judge Kavanaugh um, is one of the more thoughtful people in the lower courts, maybe the most thoughtful person in President Trump's uh, great list of 25 potential nominees. He's the one who's thought most deeply about the separation of powers. And I think the real threat to our individual liberties, which is the ever-increasing inexorable growth of federal power and the regulatory state. If anything's radical about Judge Kavanaugh, it's that he wants the courts to start reining in the growth of the federal government. Wow, that's very interesting because one guy who's supposedly on the fence is uh, Rand Paul. But if he just heard what you said, I mean, that's what he's all about, which is uh, you know decreasing that centralizing power of the federal government. Yes, if Rand Paul uh, believes the things he says and writes about being a libertarian, then the justice who would be closest to what, to his core principles would be either Justice Thomas or Judge Kavanaugh, because Kavanaugh has said he has uh, Kavanaugh's actually voted twice now to strike down independent agencies, the Federal Accounting Board and now this Consumer Finance Board uh, Protection Bureau. I'm sorry that uh, he thought put too much power in the hands of unaccountable bureaucrats. He's also called on courts to carefully scrutinize the decisions and regulations issued by federal agencies to make sure they're true to what Congress originally uh, intended. Uh, these these views would really go far to putting us back on the track to the coming, returning to the framers' constitution and not this sort of bloated administrative state that Woodrow Wilson and FDR have given us. Yeah, and and you think, as you know him, uh, that he'll be able to handle himself well in the hearing. I, I sometimes have to correct people. I don't know if you agree with me that apart from the kind of vicious and, and malignly intended attack on Bob Bork, Bob did not was not a winning, did not put forward a winning face, uh, a winning personality. 
Uh, if, he, if he just had, if he just shaved that beard, he would have yeah. mustache. He would have gone farther. <laughs> uh, who was the was a Republican or Democrat senator from Alabama? Say, so looks like he, look, he looks like Mephistopheles. He looks like Satan with that yeah, beard. Yeah. I think it's Hal Heflin. Maybe. Hal Heflin, Heflin. I think you're right. I think you're yeah. right. But I mean, he he, he was not. Well, there's a you know the old uh, de- Irish definition of charm. The capacity to elicit oh, no, what's that? the capacity to elicit the answer yes before the question is asked, and <laughs> and uh, I know people who have it. Uh, you know, I don't, but um, but 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 Bork didn't either. He was a brilliant man. I knew I knew him well, and it was a savage attack. But Kavanaugh seems to me to have a very winning way about him. I expect that he'll do extremely well in the hearings. Uh, in fact, if you want to, you know, Fortes, you could go back and look at his hearings for. Uh, the Court of Appeals, where he had a lot of grounds to be aggrieved. That many people forget that the Democrats held up his uh, confirmation to the D.C. Circuit for three years, really? where they had more than enough time to look over his record. Wow. Although you're going to start hearing complaints, they're not getting the documents fast enough. They held up his nomination for three years, uh, and then they attacked him savagely in the hearings. You go back and look what people like Senator Schumer said about him, where he said Kavanaugh wasn't salt on uh, partisan wounds. He was like pouring a whole bag of salt on partisans. Oh, they really went after him, and he handled himself with a great grace under pressure, and in the end, the Senate confirmed him. Good, good, good. I didn't know that about three years. I'm going to bring that up. That's a very important point. When when was that about, John? Uh, I think it would have been 2003 to 2006. Wow, amazing. Okay, okay. Let me ask you this. It, I, it seemed to have disappeared from the news. I was overseas last week and ran into somebody, and they, they handed me this. They said, what is this? And I, it seemed very strange to me. Uh, apparently a directive from the Justice Department that – uh, U.S. attorneys were going to be used to review uh, Kavanaugh's material. Um, yeah, it's just that there's so there's so many pages and so few attorneys with uh, necessary clearances to review them that they're call- it's basically they're calling in the fire brigade to help so that they can process the papers faster. Because think about what Kavanaugh's job was. He was the staff secretary, which means that he was in charge of all the papers that require presidential review and signature. Uh, even though he didn't produce them, his, ba- his job was essentially just to carry a bag around with the president and hand them off to the president's side. But the Democrats want to see every single page that passed through his hands. That would involve the most sensitive, classified materials in our government, even though it would have nothing to do with Kavanaugh's views on anything about constitutional power or the courts. But this is President Trump's Justice Department. Is this precedented? I mean, these guys may be the fire brigade, but they're prosecutors, right? Yes. I mean, this is the thing they're not uh, really trained for, it, but, uh, you know, this is the only people available because you need people who have the high security clearances uh, necessary to look at all the documents and, you know, can pick out the ones that might involve uh, executive privilege or sensitivities. You're not alarmed by the use of the U.S. attorneys in this regard? Not alarmed? No, I'm not, I, I'm not alarmed. I, I don't know if it'll do any good because there's so many papers that they got to go through so fast. And I think they're, I think it's actually an example of Justice Department just you know, calling in the reserves because they have nobody. I, th- I think I read an estimate by the, the, if the archives did it, it would take something like 20 years to process all the papers that the Democrats would want to see. Let me ask you about, uh, I got one more area of questions I want to get into, but one more on this. Um, is Kennedy getting a, an unfair rap? I mean, I know 
you know, a couple of these cases, the Casey case and, 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 and maybe one or two others where he really disappointed conservatives. But he was 70, 30, 80, 20 conservative, wasn't he? I think so. I think Kennedy was actually quite consistent uh, in terms of his own internal principles. And yes, to go, you were there and I was uh, around. You could go back and remember what it was like replacing uh, Bork. And people knew at the time uh, that we had no idea about Kennedy's views on things like privacy, abortion, and so on. So uh, certain conservative principles, Kennedy was quite consistent. He has been maybe the most stalwart defender of free speech and mm-hmm. uh, has fought off all kinds of uh, regulations by the left. You know, he was more conservative than Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Elena Kagan or Sonia Stoudemire or even a David Studer. Yeah. Okay. No, sure. Sure. Last thing. Um, debate here. I'm, I'm, I'm going switching here over to the FBI and the documents and the document fight between the Congress uh, and uh, and the FBI turning over the documents. I've read a couple of places that the uh, person who can cut this Gordian knot is not uh, Alexander the Great, but uh, Donald Trump the Great, or at least Donald Trump the President, that he can just say, release these Dagon things. First of all, can he? Is it is that within his power to say, release all these documents, the FISA requests, all of it? Uh, and should he? Yes. Uh, so it's a great question, Bill, because you're right. Uh, Donald Trump actually has it in his hands to settle this fight between Congress and the FBI. The president actually is the is the source for all classification in the government, and the president has the right to declassify anything that he wishes. And I think it's and presidents have in the past uh, declassified sensitive national security secrets when he thinks it's more important for the public interest for the American people and the Congress to know what's in the documents. And so uh, we've had, for example, investigations into the Iraq war, into intelligence, and so on in the past where presidents have declassified the most sensitive materials. So then the question really is not whether the president can, but should he? I think he should, because I think uh, someone, look, I worked on uh, FISA warrants, and I've appeared for the FISA court, and I've uh, worked on the Patriot Act. I, I cannot believe that the Justice Department sought surveillance warrants on an, a political presidential political campaign in a presidential year. I find it astounding. And if indeed the Justice Department relied on uh, you know, paid opposition research by the uh, other party running for president, I think that's more important for the American people to know than any secrets or sensitivities in the documents. On the other hand, I also think that uh, the American people deserve to know what the FBI's role was in investigating both the Clinton and Trump campaigns. Uh, I think Americans of both parties are really worried about and losing confidence in law enforcement intelligence. So I think this is the kind of time when I think the president could usefully, I think reasonably conclude that it's more important for the American people to see that information than protecting any sources and methods of intelligence. What puzzles me is why not? He's obviously exercised about this. It bothers the heck out of him. He even brought it up in the Putin summit, you know. Uh, so it's very much on his mind. Uh, but unlike, you know, Fire Rosenstein or, or whatever, uh, or Fire Mueller, he's getting a fair number of reasonably balanced people saying, do this. 
Uh, so what what would be the counter advice? It will look like you're obstructing justice. Is that? Would you suspect that's the I argument? Think you're, I think you're. I think you're. I think you're right in the sense that you know the people who say fire Mueller, fire Rosenstein. That's not that answer. In fact, if I were Trump, I would let the Mueller investigation proceed and just finish. It's getting, I hope it's getting close. It looks like you can close him. I think Mueller's going to say the president had nothing to do with any collusion from Russia, and that would be the most credible clearing of the Trump name that you could get. Uh, you know, what you were talking about and others talking about with the documents is more important than prosecution, which is how should the FBI and our intelligence agencies run? You know, what are they fundamentally working in the right way or do we have a real cancer in them? And that's got to be yeah, something that's great. Good. done in Congress and produced in Congress. It can't just be you know, if we look at it only through prosecute, you know, how we feel certain individual prosecutions going, then we're not really thinking about the broader structural problems in those agencies. And I tell you, that's why Trump is pregnant a lot of advice not to declassify, to come back to your original questions, because, you know, the career bureaucracies and all these agencies are going to fight like hell to stop any declassification. They prefer to prefer to work in secret and they ought to work in secret, but they need they don't like oversight either. Good. No, that answers my question. All right, we're gonna let you go. I got a last question for you. Do you stay in touch with John Stewart at all? <laughs> oh, you know, after I beat up on him on his own TV show, he had invited me back and he had to go and cancel his show. Yeah, but he did He did give you the credit. He, You remember that? He said, John, you yeah. beat the crap out of me. Remember that? I was on... I'm, the only, oh, I'm the only conservative guest who, who got the better of him. He's yeah, dead. You sure were. I, I was on and I thought I did fine, but they edited the piece so that every answer I had was my worst answers and my good answers didn't make it. But apparently all of your answers were good, which doesn't surprise me at all. God love you, John. You thank you so much. We're going to call on you again. Forewarned. Oh, anytime, forearm. though. Happy okay. to be with you. All right, folks, that was John Yu, law professor at Berkeley and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, that was a barrel full of thoughts today. Um, Serious people. Uh, Let me run through. Um, I got told so many times today I was right that I'm just going to stay on my high here. I was going to say, yeah. Delving uh, into their areas of expertise. They're (laughs) maybe being just very polite. Everybody feels the president's response could have been better. And I'm sure the president does, too. there's so many things he can do now and just move on. And boy, we had the agenda for moving on. I mean, Gordon Chang t- told us what to do in regard to China, what to do in regard to North Korea, what to do in regard to Russia. Uh, there's so many things he can do. And as he pointed out, and this was re- remarkable, these are not really hard, difficult, big lifts. Just, you know, compete with Russia there on the oil and gas business. Um Get on the banks with China. There's other things he can do with China. Reminding everybody, especially the president, we're the debtor nation. We're in the position of strength here. You know, they we owe them a lot of money, and we don't cough it up. You know, they're they're in trouble. And he said China is in trouble. Uh, the North Korean thing has taken a step or two back, but he can pull that up too. He can move that forward. That's pretty much. My, I'm guessing in the hands of Mike Pompeo right now. Um, moving to Joe, what Joel Farkas was talking about. I mean, I, he just honed in on this. And Joel has been critical of the critics of the president on geopolitical stuff the, in this cycle from the time the president went to the G7 meeting in Canada with the Trudeau stuff on the environment and all that, which then disappeared later, as Joel Farkas pointed out. 
But all this stuff about all this reaction from these shocked and horrified European European nations that Donald Trump would say bring Russia back into the G7 and make it the G8. My God, don't you know who they are, what they do? Meanwhile, these nations cozying up to Russia because they want the benefits of the pipeline. Well, we can um, cozy up too. And if they think about it, they will think they should think their interest is much more with the United States than with the bear who wants to eat them, the Soviet bear, the Russian bear. Uh, and we can probably beat him in price too. That's why. That's why Putin said we have to be careful that we don't let prices plummet. Prices plummet, and this is a one-industry economy, oil and gas. They're out of business, uh, and they're done as a superpower. They're on their ways out, way out anyway. This would hasten it. So that's that's part of the agenda for Donald Trump. Big part of the agenda for Donald Trump, and uh, should get at it. And you know. Call Farkas, Mr. President, or somebody there, and get this going. And uh, just, just a good economic competition with uh, our friend John Yu. And John Yu, I didn't bring it up. John Yu was—I don't know if you remember Claude—he was the lawyer at the Justice Department who drafted a lot of the stuff relating to um, interrogation of Al Qaeda and right, right, advised CIA and advised the president and waterboarding and all. He was caught up in all that. Brilliant guy. And as I ended, is indeed the guy about whom John Stewart had the decency to say, "I just had my head handed to me by John Yu," and he did. You just—it's a—it's a classic. You could look it up on what do you call it? YouTube. Uh, YouTube is one channel. Yeah, one uh, platform yeah. you could look that up. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for the technical assistance. <laughs> I, I had it before you said it. Yes, you did. You did. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't give yourself credit. You're tech savvy. I got so much credit today. I, every time I said something, someone would say you were right. I. I I'm just going to retire. This might be the, the best part of the day. Best part of the day, yeah. <laughs> well, Mrs. Bennett had a couple of criticisms, you know. She right. stopped in the studio briefly and said yeah. something about state. Something about a wardrobe. You know, wardrobe, a wardrobe. You not a malfunction, just no. a wardrobe insufficiency. <laughs> All right. I mean, I'm fully dressed, folks. Don't, don't right. take it no, wrong. I just, exactly. She just thinks I should. Clean up a little bit. Dress more like my sons and you. Right. you know, a little, little cleaner, a little better look. There you go. As I told you, Mrs. Bennett says, you raise boys to be the man, the kind of man you would want to marry. And I said, what's wrong with the guy you married? <laughs> she says, progress is always possible. And in your case, a lot of progress there you is, go. is possible and, and achievable. Uh, well, anyway, talking to John, John Yu, um, big support for Kavanaugh, knows him really well, knew him since law school. I think he's going in. I just think he's going. I just don't think they can stop him. And what stood out to you in that interview? To me, this thing about took three years. They took three years looking at this guy. Right, right. To put him on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. So they all, they've already been through all this. And so the, you would assume that, that he should be able to walk right through. Correct? Note to Mitch McConnell, if they say we need more time to review his records, say he had three years. Yeah, circuit court. There you go. The other thing I just want to close with um, – you know, I've, I've listened to Andy McCarthy say it. I've listened to a couple other people say it. The president, frustrated as he is with the FBI and with Comey and McCabe and some with Rosenstein and even Jeff Sessions, should just say, release all the documents that Devin Nunes and the others want. Just release them all the Pfizer requests, everything. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Just get it out there. Uh, worries about being accused of obstruction of justice. Hard to say you're trying to obstruct justice when you say release documents. So let's get the whole record out there, right? Right. Um, 
they won't say that. They'll say, "Oh, you're, you know, you're, you're endangering national security." Oh, I think that's that's bull. But uh, release all those documents. The president should do it. Let's get to the bottom of this thing, and let's get that thing over with. Anyway, I, now my concluding thought is, you know, there's a lot of stuff flying in the air. I was going to use a bad word uh, aimed at the president, and I'm not going to join in it. I, you know, I wish he said a few other things. I wish he'd said, you know, we know what you do. Mr. Putin, we don't appreciate it. it. It didn't affect, you know, the election in terms of who won, who lost. I, I, would, I won with your meddling or without your meddling. But, you know, don't do it anymore. Uh, I'm not going to look back because I, I don't know about these intelligence agencies in the past. And I'm listening to the former head of the CIA saying I was treasonous. I mean, you, you know, you, you got to understand why the president maybe says, I don't know if I can fully trust what I'm getting. Now, from Dan Coates, he can, absolutely, his new director of national intelligence. But moving forward, and moving forward, there's just so much for the president to do when it comes to Russia and when it comes to China and when it comes to North Korea. And actions speak louder than words. So I expect uh, by the time people are listening to this, the president will have issued a couple of mollifying comments or, or, or tweets and uh, <clears throat> we can move past this. I think the, the the agenda then is to act, act on stuff, say, we are moving the liquefied natural gas. We're going after the banks in China. We're increasing sanctions on Russia. And uh, we are, you know, developing our military. And, you know, the odd thing here is, you know, he's so soft on, on, on Russia, they say. He spends half his time in Europe talking about strengthening NATO. I mean... That's not soft on Russia. You got any comments? Anything? No, I think you covered the cover the spectrum. Um, you've done a great job today. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, I'm exhausted because that had kind of heavy thinking wears me out. You know. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. When I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. we had a professor. I had a professor who took a shine to me. I took a shine to him too. He, as people have seen me know, I'm a big guy. You know, left tackle. No matter right. what sport I played, they said left, left tackle. T- <laughs> Baseball team, left tackle. <laughs> Swimming team, tennis team, left tackle. Right. I'm just a left actor. Um, but uh, there's this professor, Spindly Thin, German professor, Klaus Hartmann. He was from the University of Bonn. I was studying philosophy at the University of Texas. He was a visiting professor. And he took a shine to me, thought I was good, and I loved him. I thought he was brilliant. I just could listen to him forever. And so he said, Mr. Bennett, I would like, if it's not improper, I would like to invite you to my house for dinner. And I went to his house for dinner. He cooked a little steak. And we had a little wine. And hey, I said, I got to ask you, Professor Hartman, um, how do you work? How do you know so much? I mean, what is your work pattern? I'm still a young guy, 22, trying to figure out, you know, how to get smart and know, every, right. know everything like you do. <laughs> he said, oh, well, Mr. Bennett, I get up. I'm sure it's very much like you. I get up in the morning. I have a cup of tea. I have a biscuit. I start to read. And I read and read and read. And I look at my watch and it's three o'clock and I've <laughs> forgotten lunch and I just have a little bite and then I go back and read some more and I look at my watch and it's 1030 at night uh. and I've forgotten dinner and he said, I'm sure it's very much like you. And I, my, my mouth was hanging open. <laughs> he said, I just sometimes just read all day and forget to do anything else. Is that like it? Is it like that for you, Mr. Bennett? And I said, sometimes I get up in the morning and I start eating and I look at my watch and it's, <laughs> Four in the afternoon. Oh, I forgot to read. And I turn on the TV and I do this and I do that. I had a friend in graduate school who said, 
I am so distracted by everything. You know, that comes that time when you got to sit at home or you're in your apartment and write your dissertation. Mm-hmm. And he said, I just have this impulse to get out of the chair to go over and pick up a magazine or look outside or turn on the TV. This guy tied himself to his legs no. to the to the legs of the table. <laughs> he said, it's just that initial impulse. And if I can resist that. Mm-hmm. So he tied both legs. I said, you got to hope there's not a fire. Right. You know? <laughs> Alarms go on. But uh, anyway, that's when I knew I would not be a professional philosopher. (laughs) I might be an amateur philosopher, or as a friend of mine said, a large-minded amateur, but not not a full-time professional. You do well. I do. Okay. I get by. I get by, and I'm very happy where I am. This is a great podcast, I think. We'd love to hear from you. Please give us your comments. And we'll uh, read them next week or the week after. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Bill Bennett, The Bill Bennett Show. 